0: turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 4. Hebrews, chapter 4, we'll be reading verses 11 through 16 and considering death and life. Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 11. Give attention to God's holy word. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do come now to your throne of grace to find grace to help in a time of need. We, Lord, confess and acknowledge that at all times we are needy, but it is especially on the Lord's Day that you remind us of our neediness. And so in this light, we come to you asking that you would bless this time of preaching by pouring out the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in our hearts that we may truly enjoy life in him. And we pray all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen. The great reality of existence is that God is. The undeniable fact of all reality is that the living God is. This is the name that he gave to Moses in the book of Exodus when Moses was standing at the burning bush. The Lord said to Moses, I am what I am. In essence, what the Lord was telling Moses is that I am the one who exists. This is what sets apart the living God from all the gods of the nations. Our God is. When God first made man and first put him in the Garden of Eden, the living God made man in his own image so that man could commune with this living God. God made man in such a way that the one who exists would be enjoyed and glorified by his creature for all eternity. But as you and I both know, Adam and Eve sinned and lost communion with God. But not only did they lose communion with God, they tried to avoid God. You remember the story, I trust. When Adam and Eve had sinned and they felt guilty, they hid themselves away from the presence of God. And from that day to this, our sinful nature is constantly fighting this battle of wanting to avoid the one fundamental fact of existence, The living God is, and you will face him. But our God is gracious, our God is merciful, and he desires to have a people that will worship him and commune with him. And so in order to achieve that, the Lord instituted the covenant of grace. God's covenant is his uh, promise to bring us into communion with himself. In the Old Testament, the covenant of grace took the form of the Mosaic ceremonies, the kingdom of David, and all the things we read about in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the covenant of grace comes to perfection in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when God sends out his gospel, he's sending out his covenant to call sinners to himself. And there is two ways. That God sends his gospel to sinners. There are two things that God uses to motivate men to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. These two ways of God's speaking are symbolized in the ministry of John the Baptist. You remember, John the Baptist came and he ate locusts and honey. Paul the Apostle gives expression to these two realities of the gospel when he says that we are the aroma of Christ, and we disseminate His aroma in every place. To the one, it is an aroma of death unto death, but to the other, it is the aroma of life unto life. And you see, these two realities are presented to sinners in the preaching of the gospel. And in this passage, we find an example of that once again. When God sends his gospel to a person, to a people, to a church, to a nation, he sends his gospel with the threat of death upon disobedience and the promise of life upon obedience. That's what we're going to see in this passage. God sends his gospel with the threat of death upon disobedience and the promise of life upon obedience. This is a sobering reminder to us, especially in our day. Many, I think, misunderstand God's ways with men. Many misunderstand the book of Hebrews because the book of Hebrews is a book that contains the greatest number of warnings and threatenings to the church. Now, we misunderstand these things because Not only do we misunderstand God's ways, we misunderstand our own hearts. It would be easier if the Bible was all promise, was was all grace, was all sweetness and light. But you see, our hearts are so twisted. When everything is grace, when everything is sweetness, when everything is light, we tend to grow lazy. The Lord knows this, and so he sends to us not only promises, He sends us threatenings and warnings, and that's what we're going to find in this passage. Verses 11 through 13 is the threat of death, and verses 14 through 16 is the promise of life. We begin by noticing verse 11. Notice now that the author is drawing a conclusion from the discussion he's been engaged in since chapter 3. He says, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. The rest that he is talking about and the entrance of that rest is one of the benefits of the gospel. This is the rest that Israel failed to achieve when they failed to enter the land of Canaan. This rest is something that we enjoy by faith. Look at the beginning of chapter 4. The author writes and says, therefore... Since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. So this rest that he is speaking about is a rest that we enjoy by faith. It is laying hold of the gospel, and in laying hold of the gospel we receive the benefit But now he changes his exhortation, doesn't he? He says, let us be diligent to enter this rest. You know, sometimes it's a misconception that we have. We we sometimes think that because the gospel is given to us to enjoy by faith, we simply have to be passive receivers. We tend to think of faith as a passive thing, as something that merely receives and is filled up like a cup of water. But in the the picture of the scriptures, the description of faith, faith is active. Faith is diligent. Faith exerts itself. The Lord Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and the violent take the kingdom of heaven by force. Faith is an active thing, and in this passage in particular, it's a self-denying thing. When John Calvin is commenting on this passage, he it takes a, takes a moment to note that the way we enter into this rest is through self-denial. It is through humbling ourselves and mortifying our sinful deeds and desires. This passage gives expression to that by using the word diligence. But notice also what's in verse 11. It says, Let us be diligent lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. The fall here that's spoken about is a final fall. It is a fall unto destruction. This is a description of what it means to perish under the wrath of God. And he he cites also the same example of disobedience. The example he's referring to is Israel on the borders of Canaan as they're about to enjoy all of the promises that had been made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All of the things God had been doing in the nation of Israel, they were on the borders of enjoying it, and they disobeyed. Because they disobeyed, they perished in the wilderness. This is the example that the author is using. One other thing to note about verse 11 is very important for our understanding. Notice that he calls their failure disobedience. And we just read in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, they did not enter because of unbelief. Now he changes his language. He's talking about the same thing, and he says that was disobedience. To fail to believe the gospel is disobedience of the highest order. To fail to embrace God's promises by faith is to disobey and is therefore a sin. Paul the Apostle says in Acts chapter 17 when he's preaching in the city of Athens at Mars Hill, he says that God commands all men everywhere to repent. God commands all men to believe the gospel. Now this is for two reasons. One, from the authority of God himself. Whenever God says something, he says it with absolute authority. Whenever God speaks, he speaks as the one true and living God. He is the one that exists. And because of that, his word is law. To reject his word is to disobey God. But more precisely, and to help your understanding of this, this kind of disobedience, this unbelief is a violation of the first commandment. You remember what the first commandment is. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. When the commandments prohibit something, false gods, they are also commanding the contrary virtue. So if the law says have no false gods, it implies embrace the one true and living God. Take Jehovah as your God. Now what does it mean to have something as your God? What does it mean to Uh, honor adore and worship something as your deity well at a basic level it means to believe him at a very fundamental level it means if something is god in your life you believe them implicitly because they are god with absolute authority and absolute sovereignty and so when we fail to believe the gospel we're actually committing a grave sin we're committing what you might say is the chief sin because it is the first commandment. This is where Adam and Eve's sin began, isn't it? Did God really say? And when they believed that line from Satan, they began the course of sin. And so verse 11 reminds us of these things. He says, Be diligent, lest any of you fall by the same example of disobedience And now he gives the reasons for this. In verses 12 and 13, he gives a description of the one that will judge you. And and I want you to notice, before we get into the details of this description, this description is, as it were, of the Lord Jehovah as a mighty and skillful warrior. Notice that in verse 12, there's a description of the weapon. And then in verse 13, there's a description of the one who wields that weapon. And so the aspect that we're given here is that when Jehovah comes in judgment, when you have to face the one you've disobeyed, you will be facing a mighty warrior with his sword drawn, pressed upon your heart. This is what all men will have to face who disobey the gospel. But let's look in more detail about how this one is described. He says first in verse 12, for the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Now you know that Hebrews was written in the first century of uh, the in the first century of this age anno domini, and at that time the Roman military was the chief military power in the world. The, one of the reasons that the Roman military was so powerful is because their swords were so good. The Roman gladius was a short sword. And it had two sharp edges on both sides with a very narrow point. The Roman gladius was made to stab. The purpose of that sword was to pierce through armor and reach all the way in to the enemy. This is a description the author uses to describe the Word of God. It is sharper than any two edged sword. Any Roman gladius that you have seen, the Word of God is sharper. Notice he says it is also living and powerful. You see, the one true and living God is the one that exists. And because he exists, his word has as much life as he does. The reason that the word of God is living and powerful is because God is living and powerful. He goes on further to describe this sword, and he says it pierces even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow even though this sword is sharper than any two-edged sword, we can compare it to a Roman gladius. What he's saying in this passage is that it is a spiritual sword. The Roman gladius only divides joints and marrow. It can only kill the body. But the word of God, this spiritual sword, can kill the body and it can kill the soul. God's word is that powerful and that penetrating. It reaches all the way into the soul and takes life away. When you separate the bone from the marrow, that bone is dead. When you separate the soul from the spirit, that soul is dead. That's what's being described here, is the way that the Word of God kills those who are disobedient, those who fail to believe the gospel. There's one last description in verse 12 that we need to pay attention to. And this is where the author he's moving out of the realm of metaphor, and he's coming right down to the actual way that the Word of God shows itself, the way that the Word of God penetrates. He says it divides joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You see, the unique power of the Word of God is that same kind of power that the Lord Jesus displayed in the Gospels. You know all these episodes where Christ is talking to the Pharisees. For instance, when the sinful woman comes to wash Jesus' feet with her tears and her hair. He's in the house of Simon the Pharisee. And Simon the Pharisee begins saying in his heart, if he knew what manner of woman this was, he would not let her touch him. And then it says, Christ, knowing his heart, began to ask him questions. Christ is the heart searcher. And now the Word of God is described as the one that searches the heart, and it searches our inmost heart. You know, the Scriptures in the Christian life contain many duties. There's many things we are to do as Christians. We are to study the Scriptures diligently. We are to pray in season and out of season. We are to uh, attend worship and to receive the sacraments. We are to, as our dear brother and sister vowed, submit to the government and discipline of the church. We are to commit to living a Christian life. But you see, with all of these duties, there is also required the right motivation. There is also required the right kind of heart in engaging in all of these duties. Turn with me briefly to Psalm 50. Psalm 50 is a psalm, much like Hebrews chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. It's a passage where the Lord comes to his people and begins to rebuke and to threaten them, to motivate them to obedience. But I want you to notice how he rebukes them and what he rebukes them for. Starting in verse 8, he says, I will not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. The people that the Lord is speaking to have performed all of the outward duties. They are doing everything Moses commanded. They are outwardly obeying what God had commanded them to do. Continue reading. He says, I will not take a bull from your house, nor goats of your folds, For every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all its fullness. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Notice what the Lord is saying here. You've given me all these outward sacrifices. But your assumption, your heart... Is that you think I need these things? You think this is the thing I really want. Merely your outward sacrifices. But now he goes further in verse 14. Offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Translation I don't need your bulls and goats. I want your heart. I want your love. I want your devotion. I want your heart commitment to me. This is how the Word of God discerns the thoughts and intents of our inmost heart. This is often what the Word of God will do when we are confronted with it. Have you ever felt that pain, of conviction. Have you ever felt that that uh, little bit of fear and terror when the Word of God begins to expose you a little bit? When, when the Word of God says things like it does in Psalm 50, call upon me and I will deliver you. Have you ever felt that maybe you're in a bad spot in your life and, and you've indulged in complaining and grumbling about things and, and you begin to fall into the cycle of complaining and grumbling and you begin to ask yourself, Why are things the way that they are? Then the Lord's word reminds us, call upon me. Have you called upon the Lord? Have you prayed to God day and night? Have you prayed with a right motive? James speaks in chapter 4 of his letter. You uh, go to James chapter 4, the next book over. James chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain, you fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. But James goes further. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. You see how the the word discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. Prayer is good, but for prayer to be acceptable, it must be done with the right motivation. It must be done with the right intent. Returning to Hebrews chapter 4, this example of prayer can be applied to any of the other duties that you do as a Christian. The way that you read your scriptures, do you do it so that your head can get large Do you do it so that you can boast to your friends and elders? When you serve one another in the church, do you do it so as to receive applause? These are all wrong motivations. These are all wrong intents. And the Word of God searches us out. The author of Hebrews goes further, though. It's not just the Word of God. It's God Himself. Verse 13. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him with whom, uh, uh, to whom we must give an account. Notice that the description goes even further. The, the, the warrior and his weapon, we've seen how the weapon discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart, that the sword seems to penetrate right to our inmost soul, but there is somebody who wields the sword Who knows everything about you? Not just the one thing that he convicts you about, not just the one thing you're worried about. He knows everything. There is nothing hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and exposed to him. This is based on God's infinite knowledge. You see, God is not only the true and living God who exists, but being God, he has knowledge of everything, your inmost thoughts and desires, your plans for Sunday afternoon, all the things that are going on in your head right now. God knows all of these things, and this is why when the word of God comes to us, it seems to always When God is wielding his sword in our hearts, it always seems to hit right on the mark, doesn't it? You ever been sitting under a sermon and you're hearing the preacher and you may be sitting there thinking, wow, was he following me this week? How does he know what's going on in my life? I can assure you the preacher doesn't know. The God who wields the word of the preacher knows. And that's why the sword is cutting you right there. Because this God knows Everything. Now, today, as the author says in the book of Hebrews, today, if you will hear his voice, at this time, the Lord does this work to drive you to salvation. Remember how this section began. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest we fall by the same example of disobedience. And then he gives this description of God the warrior with the weapon. The reason we have this description is to goad us, to lay hold of salvation. It is to motivate us to diligence in the use of the means of grace, in communing with the Lord Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, I will tell you, fear is a good motivator. You know, I used to be a land surveyor. And one of the things that land surveyors do is they spend a lot of time in the woods, There's many enjoyable things about being in the woods, but there's one particularly unenjoyable thing about being in the woods, especially in Georgia where it is hot and humid where I did surveying. That unpleasant thing is yellow jackets. Now, as a surveyor, I have been stung probably 50 or 60 times by yellow jackets. That's just part of the job. And every time a yellow jacket stings you, doesn't matter how many times they get you, it always lights you up. It feels like somebody threw a baseball right at your thigh every single time. As a surveyor, you get used to this danger. You, you felt it. You don't want to feel it again. Now, there was one time I was surveying with my crew, and I was on the instrument, which is the big camera thing on the tripod, and I was standing there getting ready to go about our work. The, the rest of my crew was out in the woods ahead of me, and we heard one of the guys way down the line scream at the top of his youngs, Yellow Jackets! Well, my co-worker, who was the next one in front of me, as soon as he heard that, he came charging back at me and did a diving leap over a log and almost knocked my instrument over. You see how fear motivates diligence. The fear of the Yellow Jacket motivated him to be diligent in laying hold of safety. Likewise, in the spiritual life, the Lord reminds us of this danger. He reminds us and appeals to our sense of fear of death to motivate us to lay hold of Christ. Now, let me apply this to your hearts before we move on to the next section. Some of you may be living in sin. Some of you may be dabbling with disobedience, either distrusting God's promises, either um, actively pursuing self-indulgence, Some of you may be living in sin and the Lord reminds you if you stay in that sin, you will perish. You know, some people often ask the question, how much can I sin before I'll go to hell? That much. It only takes one sin to send you to hell. All sin is worthy of the wrath of God. Any sin that's in your life right now will destroy you. And it's not even the sin that will destroy you. God Almighty will be wielding the sword. God Almighty will be standing there on Judgment Day with His sword drawn, asking you the question, Did you believe in Me? Did you obey Me? Did you lay hold of My covenant while you had time? Brothers and sisters, now is the time. Now is the time to enter into salvation. As the author of Hebrews says, Today, if you will hear His voice, Do not harden your hearts, as in the testing of the wilderness. Today is the day of salvation. But the Lord not only threatens us with death, He also promises life. He promises life to those that embrace the gospel. And that's what 14 through 16 are. The author moves on then and says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. The author transitions from this description of God the judge with his weapon of judgment, and he moves now to describe our great high priest. I want you to notice a couple of things about this high priest. First off, he has entered the rest that we are going to enjoy. Those that believe in Christ and are united to Christ... Enjoy the things that Christ enjoys. He says, this high priest has passed through the heavens. This is a description that's uh, related to what the high priest under Moses would do. You see, the high priest, when the tabernacle was set up, would come to the altar, offer the sacrifices, do the washings, and enter the first veil. And then in the first veil, he would order the showbread, he would light the lamps, He would offer the incense, and then once a day he would enter in behind the second veil. The second veil was the special presence of God. That's where the Shekinah glory dwelt. That was the holy of holies. The tabernacle is a pattern taken from heaven. The Lord told Moses, see that you make the tabernacle according to the pattern that I showed you. So as the high priest is moving through the veils of the tabernacle, it is a ceremonial and symbolic picture of entering God's heavenly presence. Christ has entered the reality. Christ has passed through all of the heavenly veils, and now he is in the presence of God. He is enjoying God's eternal rest. He is enjoying all of the blessedness that the gospel promises to you. And this is your high priest. This is the one who's offered to you for your salvation. Look also what he says. He not only has passed through the heavens, he is the Son of God. Now the Son of God is important, this description of Christ, because we have to deal with the true and living God. We have to face the Holy One, whose righteousness And holiness is infinite and eternal. You see, the reason your sins deserve death and hell is because of the one you have sinned against. You see, if I speak a little bit rudely to my wife, that's worthy of some judgment. If I speak a little bit rudely to my mother, that's worthy of more judgment. If I speak rudely to the Queen of England, that is worthy of even more judgment. That could be considered treason, depending on the context. So you see, the one that you sin against increases your guilt. The Almighty God is the one that you have sinned against. Therefore, your atonement, the only way to be forgiven of that sin, is if you have a divine atonement. Jesus, the Son of God, is that divine atonement. You see, his blood is able to cleanse you of your sin because he's not merely a man. He is also the Son of God Almighty. His righteousness is equal to the Father's righteousness, and by faith, that righteousness becomes yours, and your sins are wiped away. Jesus, the Son of God, has passed through the heavens, and then the author says, let us hold fast our confession. You know, uh, not only was I a land surveyor, I also used to work at a summer camp. And one of my duties at that summer camp was setting up the ropes course. We had a high ropes course. And at the end of the ropes course, there was this great big zip line. You started on a platform about 80 feet up in a tree. And after all the campers would go through the ropes course, then the, the counselors and the staff would have to get out of the ropes course. And at the end of a long day, I could have taken the zip line, but that would have involved all kinds of other things to get me off the zip line. What I would normally do is rappel out of that platform. You hang the rope, hook it to your harness, and then rappel down. Well, one day, I was getting ready to exit the platform, and I was hungry, tired, I I was ready to get out of there. And so I was rushing a little bit. As I clipped in my figure eight and and began to descend out of the platform, as soon as I got away from the platform and there was nothing else I could do, I felt the rope slipping. And I began to free fall for a second or two. Now what I did in that situation was the only thing that I could do. I held fast with my hands on the rope. And I was grabbing on for dear life because I knew the danger. I was grabbing on so tightly that I burned my hands. But I made it out of there. I held on fast to the thing that would save me. That's what the author is saying here. Your confession of Christ is what saves you. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth one confesses unto salvation. And so he says, in the light of this danger, hold fast your confession. Do you feel the guilt of your sins? Hold fast to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you feel uh, hopeless and despondent? Hold fast to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you feel that in yourself there is no good thing? Perhaps you feel like the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank the Lord through Jesus Christ. You see, he holds on to the Lord Jesus even more tightly because Christ is your high priest. He has entered the heavens, he is the Son of God. His blood is able. Not only so, but Jesus, our high priest, just like God the judge, Christ the priest, knows you intimately. Look at what he says, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. You see, in the threat of death, part of the motivation is that God is holy and righteous and he knows everything about you. But now in the promise of life, Jesus is your high priest, his blood is valuable, and he knows everything that you're going through. He has been tempted in every way that you are tempted. He knows everything about your life. And he has not only, he not only knows it as God, he has experienced it as a fellow man. That's what it means when it says to sympathize with our weaknesses, any temptation that you can think of you're going through right now, Christ endured it. Christ knows the danger of sin. Christ knows the power of sin. In fact, Christ knows the power of sin to such a degree that when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the eve of the crucifixion, he was tempted To disobey his father. Father, not my will, but yours be done. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. And Christ was feeling the temptation to such a degree that he sweat great drops of blood. That's temptation. That's experiencing the power of sin. And so Christ knows what you're being tempted with. Christ sympathizes with you as your high priest. Therefore, Lay hold of him. Not only was he tempted, just as we are, he is without sin. Now, we need to just observe one important piece of our Lord Jesus Christ here. This verse and other verses that speak about the temptation of Christ often get things confused. When we speak of temptation, we, we sometimes think temptation is a thing outside of us that leads us to sin. We sometimes think that the uh, bag of money left in the airport, that's what's tempting me to be a thief. We sometimes think that the images on the computer, those are what's tempting me to violate the seventh commandment. We think things outside of us are what tempt us. That's not the case. James tells us in chapter 1 of his letter, each man is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. That's how temptation works in you and I. See, the reason the bag of money is tempting is because our heart wants to be a thief. The reason that the images on the screen are tempting is because we want to violate the seventh commandment. The the reason that uh, all of these things tempt us is because our hearts want to be tempted. They want to sin. But the Lord Jesus Christ is without sin. So in the case of the Lord Jesus, there were outward things that Satan used to tempt him, but his heart gave no consent. His heart was never drawn away from it. And it was because of this dynamic, the outward temptation, Satan, the, uh, the world, the, the disciples all around him, everybody tempting him from outside, his heart was never moved. That's why he's without sin. And that's why ultimately he shed his blood resisting sin. When we speak of the Lord Jesus Christ and his temptations, there's that very important difference. Think about it like this. The world tempts you. And the way that it tempts you is by sending a message, sin. It will feel good. And as that message comes to you, your heart is like an echo chamber for that temptation. Your heart echoes what the world is saying. The Lord Jesus Christ's heart had no space to echo the temptation of the world because it was filled with the love of His Father. So when the world sent its message to Christ, it hit a brick wall and fell to the ground. There was nothing that could move Him. So He was tempted at all points as we are, yet He was without sin. The second thing to keep in mind about the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God, it is not... That Jesus didn't ever sin, that is true, but Christ's righteousness goes even further. Christ could not sin. It was impossible for Christ to sin as the Son of God. That is something that needs to be kept in mind when you think about the Lord Jesus Christ. It was impossible for him to sin, therefore He didn't sin. And therefore, he can sympathize with you as one that knows the way of escape. He can sympathize with you as the high priest that can save you. And therefore, we are to lay hold of him. Well, the author goes on a little bit further to describe the diligence that we need to obtain this salvation. Verse 16. Notice that verse 11 and verse 16 are parallel to one another. This is what's known as, the scholars use a fancy Latin word called an inclusio. You can write that one down and bring it out later on to impress people. This is what's called an inclusio. It means that verse 11 and verse 16 express the same idea, and they bracket this section. So verse 11 said, Let us be diligent to enter that race, Uh, uh, rest. Verse 16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The author now describes entering that rest. It describes the diligence of faith as being bold in our prayers, as being confident that when we go to God in prayer by faith in Christ, he hears us. And that when we go to the throne of grace, we will obtain grace and mercy. Mercy is God's compassion upon the undeserving. It's God's pity for those that are suffering. His grace is his unmerited favor. You need both of these to be saved. You need God's mercy to pity you when you are struggling in the filth of your sin, as the book of Ezekiel describes but you also need His grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, to elevate you as the sons and daughters of God. You need both for salvation. And that's what God offers to you at the throne of grace. But I want to leave you with this thought. John Calvin, commenting on this passage, makes this observation. What's being described here is the confidence we have in prayer. Those that believe in Christ can have absolute confidence that God will receive you and will answer you as you pray in his name. One of the things that Calvin says about this confidence is that this is the chief benefit of religion. Think about that. The chief benefit of believing in the Lord Jesus Christ today is that God hears you. The chief blessing of this life is not health and wealth and popularity. The chief blessing of this life is not peace of mind. The chief blessing of this life is the confidence that when I pray to my Heavenly Father, He hears me. This is the chief confidence that we have in Christ. And this is what it means to enter that rest, to come boldly into the throne of grace. And as we enter that throne of grace, God will give you grace because the Lord Jesus Christ is your high priest and he has already passed through the heavens. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your warnings and your promises. We thank you for your threatenings and for your commitments. We thank you, O Lord, that you are the holy and righteous and just God that can have, that whose eyes are too pure to look upon sin. We marvel and and worship you as the holy God before whose presence the angels cover their eyes. And we thank you, O Lord, for the reminder That the inheritance of the disobedience will be death. We thank you also, O Lord, for the promise, for those that obey the gospel, for those that have confessed the Lord Jesus Christ and cling to the Lord Jesus Christ and enter the throne room of grace through the Lord Jesus Christ, that you will give us eternal life. We pray, O Lord, that you would seal these things to our hearts by your Spirit and help us ever and always to cling to Christ and to call upon you in the name of Christ. And we ask all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen.